LaunchDarkly enables development and operations teams to deploy code at any time, even if a feature isn't ready to be released to users. Wrapping code with feature flags gives you the safety to test new features and infrastructure in your production environments without impacting the wrong end users. Learn more at launchdarkly.com. Hello and welcome to the InfoQ podcast. I'm Daniel Bryant, news manager here at InfoQ and director of DevRel at Ambassador Labs. In this edition of the podcast, I had the pleasure of chatting with Melissa Benua, director of engineering at MParticle. I met Melissa at a panel at an online security conference and enjoyed chatting to her about all things platforms, testing, and continuous delivery. In this podcast, I wanted to dive a little deeper into the concept of dev test SecOps, the shifting left of testing and security, and how to encourage everyone in the organization to take responsibility for these important topics. From my previous discussions with Melissa, I knew that she has a lot of hard-won experience both as an individual contributor and also as a technical leader, and so I wanted to explore the differing approaches to testing and continuous delivery for both types of roles. Hello, Melissa, and welcome to the InfoQ podcast. Hi, thanks for having me, Daniel. Could you introduce yourself for the listeners, please? My name is Melissa Benua. I am a director of engineering at a startup called Imparticle, and I do many things, but foremost among them is our dev test sec up strategy, which is kind of a mouthful. You and I met on a SneakCon panel a few months ago now, I guess it was, and I was super interested when you did your intro there. You mentioned about dev test SecOps. Initially, we were there to talk about dev SecOps, but I was like, testing makes sense, right? Everyone's got to do testing. Could you unpack that a little bit, Melissa, what your motivation is for doing all that? Testing and security are both inextricably tied up in quality. Right? You can't have software that does what the users want in a safe and happy way in a performant way without those two things. And you really can't have one without the other. And so I've tied them together because the strategies are just, they're so intertwined. And so part of ensuring right, our code quality is static analysis, which is also a reasonable set of, you know, checking for security vulnerabilities. Likewise, making sure we understand what the performance characteristics of our services is important for quality, for testing, but again, also for security. So you know when you've got a deviation. It's all about knowing that something strange has happened. That's a really interesting thing, I guess, because I think many engineers I've chatted to in the past don't know the baseline of their system. They don't know what weird looks like. Have you got any advice for how folks should go about maybe an organizational level or a technical level to establish those baselines? You have to start simple. So if you have nothing, you have to start at least with your basic metrics. There's an acronym for them that I never remember. It's a clever one, but you have to know your successes, your failures, your latencies. What does that look like on a normal day? So you have to instrument, this is what successes are. Most services have a sine wave. If you follow like business traffic or home traffic, your sine wave will invert, right? What do your latencies look like on a normal day at the 50th, 90th, 99th percentiles? What are your error rates? And really just starting there, right? Those are the bare bones basics. Latencies, requests, success and failure, and CPU usage. CPU usage is the other bare bones, simple one. Um, to track, right? If you're usually running at 30% and then one day you do a deploy and you're running at 90% utilization, something strange has happened. (laughs) Who do you think should predominantly own these things? And this is probably a bit of a trick question, right? But is it dev? Is it ops? Is it someone else? It's so tricky. So it depends on the model of your engineering groups. If you have a traditional ops group, then they may own the alerts. But if you have a more savvy developer group or developers you know, who slide into DevOps, then it should be the developers. So my philosophy here is whoever owns the metrics are the people you would call to fix it. I've done many years of on-call rotations, and there's nothing worse than being called for an issue that you cannot fix. All you can do is say, yep, that sure is an issue. And let me go call someone else. 
There's nothing worse than that. Nothing burns out a dev team or an ops team or any team faster than being woken up for no reason. So my opinion is whoever owns the metrics should be the people who at least know how to provide the fix and preferably should be the ones providing the fix. I like that. I've done the same as you on call, both from like an IC and a leadership point of view. And it's really powerful, I think, making the folks who are creating these things responsible. I used to get a lot of pushback, though, doing the whole dev on call thing. Developers used to say to me, and this is a fair bit of time when I was doing development, to be fair, about five years ago or so. But developers used to say to me, that's not my job. I'm here to create code, create you know functions, and then I hand it off to ops. Have you got any advice on folks who say that? <laughs> Anytime there's a handed off, you've got an organizational problem, in my opinion. So I maybe Dave myself, but we had an SDET team. So it was developers who handed off their code to test their code. They handed off their code to the SDET to test. And then SDET handed off the code to ops to monitor. And that code is a nightmare. <laughs> yes. Right. And not only was the code a nightmare, but the teams were a nightmare because more often than not, you'd end up with people arguing with each other. You'd end up with the live set incident. Well, it's dev's fault because dev wrote the bad code. Well, it's test's fault because test didn't catch it. Well, actually, it's ops' fault because they monitored the wrong thing. You just end up with a lot of finger pointing and blame. And there's a lot of inefficiencies in every step you have to hand off, right? Every time you hand off, you lose something. Oh, interesting. And what you end up with is developers who own enormous swaths of functionality, but have very little responsibility for it. So I would much rather have developers own small pieces of functionality, but have deep, you know, cutting responsibility for it because you preserve context better that way. Very interesting. That's going sort of to the whole Amazon two pizza team, properly cross-functional teams. Because one pushback I get is that now as a full stack developer, like you need to know everything almost from the CPU chips, you know, all the way through to like React and, and so forth at the front end. I guess that like, you need to have those responsibilities, those understandings, but at a team level, not at an individual level. Exactly. I think it's too broad to expect somebody to be a master of React and also to know, you know, C++ code is compiling down at the bytecode level and also to know how to, op- like, it's too much. I'd much rather have a UI expert, you know, backend expert, but they own their system cross-cut all the way through to production because nobody knows what your backend system is supposed to be doing better than the person who wrote it. Right? You know what your code's supposed to be doing. You have the intrinsic insight and the theory tooling available to know, ah, I wrote this code. It's supposed to do this thing. Here's what it looks like when it's doing that thing. Here's what it looks like when it's not doing that thing. If you throw it over the wall to an ops person, they know generally what services look like, but they don't really know what yours should look like. I was going to actually ask you about platforms. And I think you mentioned tooling there. And I think it's somewhat in the similar space. How do you think... Dev and ops should inter and test, of course, should interact in this new world of containers, infrastructures, code, everything on the network, cloud. What's the best thing you've perhaps seen in your experience or what you'd recommend to folks about how to interact and use the platform and the tools appropriately? Yeah, and so this is fluid and that the answers are going to change over time as certain technologies go from edge case to specialty case to mainstream case. I've seen it change. So my preference is that operations like ops teams are fantastic at knowing services in general. How do you scale a service? How does, you know, cost factor in, right? General reliability and monitoring, you know, in a cross-cutting way. They're generally more, you know, more Linux savvy. If you need somebody to SSH onto a box and do something crazy, they do it. So far, I've seen them take over ownership of managed services, like, you know, running your Kubernetes cluster. Because it's a specialized skill set, it's not something that's entered the mainstream yet. But in five years, I may have a different opinion, right? I may feel like, ah, the tooling actually is mature enough that, you know, dev can figure out how their skills are going to scale in Kubernetes. Today, I don't think we're there. But this is what I mean by it shifts over time as the tooling and the tools themselves enter the mainstream and more and more people know it. And the resources and, you know, everything becomes more accessible. 
it's sort of like I use like the IAM rule. If you have to go into Amazon and write YAML to configure your services, probably you need a specialist. If you can do it through the UI or through a simple Terraform, probably you don't. Oh, I like that. I like that. I've had a few interesting chats, folks, in terms of high-level constructs. So Terraform gets mentioned a lot, as does Plumi, things like this. But again, that kind of comes back to some of the arguments of developers just having to know more stuff. It's great that Plumi allows you to write infrastructure as code in a language of your choosing, a general purpose language. But then does the responsibility fall more onto the developers again? I view ops in the same way as I do securities, the same way as I do tests, in that they're a specialist provider whose job is to make it easy for the other teams to interact with them. So ops may write the grand bulk of the Terraform and make it so devs only have to write, you know, you're setting up a new service, great. Here's the five lines of templated Terraform. You just have to customize little pieces. Same thing with security. The security guys know the tools, know the rules that need to be set, but they should make it easy for the developers to run and validate that they've done the right thing. Same thing with tests. Test experts know, like, you know what an end-to-end for automation framework should look like. You know the characteristics of it. You know what should be validating. But you shouldn't be writing every single test case. So what's the best way to go about introducing the dev test SecOps mindset into a traditional team? So the most important thing you need is champions. You don't need even an expert, but you need a champion. You need somebody who's going to advocate for whatever it is. And it may be that you have a strong quality advocate. It may be you have, you know, one or two security advocates, preferably one per team. So it sort of depends on your team structure and team size and team duration, right? If you have short-lived teams versus long-lived teams. I've tried it where I said from on high, hey, organization, I need you to do these things. And it doesn't matter what your title is. It's unlikely to be effective. But if you can convince one or two people on the teams, hey, look at this cool thing. And they can say, oh, look, this is amazing. It made my life easier. And then you have all these little seeds planted, little secret seeds planted in the teams that are much more impactful. Because if you hear it from one person, fine. If you hear it from five people, maybe there's something interesting. Any advice on how to create that? I've seen some folks like Gene Kim talk about running internal boot camps, trying to, you know, almost like create champions. Any advice or thoughts on that process? I've done it a couple ways. The most effective has been having people float temporarily onto a project that they're interested in. So my team will have a list of projects we want to do and they'll say, I want to really try this and I'll see if anybody is interested in working, you know, like a short term, like a month, two month project, having them float over to my team, work on that, you know, whether it's a testing thing, a tooling thing or whatever it is, and then fall back to their team. And it does a couple of things, right? If somebody floats on my team, I gain credibility as somebody, hopefully, yeah. <laughs> hopefully I gain credibility as somebody who knows what they're doing, uh, theory. <laughs> and then they are the ones who are doing some of the work. So they gain empathy for the work that's, you know, sometimes quite hard, sometimes quite thankless. And then they take those best practices back to their team. And then the team is hearing it from their teammate, not from somebody they only sort of know, right? Somebody they interact with and trust every single day. So a rotation, a float, special projects, hackathons, all of those things are secret tools I've used to build empathy. I like that. That is definitely like a bonus thing, I think, to take away there, as in, because I find this really hard. I've done consultancy in the past, but it is getting your internal champions. I struggled with at times, but once I did it, the magic happened, to your point. Exactly. You got that chatter in the lunchroom, right? That chatter around the water cooler, and suddenly everyone was going, well, hey, I'm using Jenkins. It's much easier to deploy my thing now. And you're like, there we go, <laughs> right? Exactly. I know that I've won when it's not me saying, but what about this cool thing? It's the developer saying, oh yeah, Cypress. All of a sudden they're, you know, go from me pushing Cypress to one person trying out Cypress to all of them arguing over the best test pattern to use in their Cypress automation. Like that's it. Then I know we're good to go. We're solid. 
I totally plus all on that advice. I've definitely seen that. So when when I'm sat in a meeting and someone echoes back something I've been championing all the time, I'm like, result. Yes. <laughs> nice. Yes. Excellent. We might change gears a little bit now and think about sort of understandability because, you know, you and I were talking off mic. You've got to be able to understand a system to think about testing and security. Have you got any tips and tricks for folks to think about understandability, either when they're greenfield building a new system or maybe how do they understand something that's already in production, has been in production for some time? So if you're greenfield, it's relatively easy. There's a lot of best practices for how to start. There's a lot of ways to bootstrap. Open telemetry or something like that. And you can plug into a number of different providers. Your understandability is basically done for you. If you're not greenfield, which most of us aren't, you've got to bolt something on. I always say to start easy and start with what may be already available to you that you might not know. For example, if you're running in the cloud, your cloud provides metrics, right? Amazon provides you CloudWatch, Azure provides you, what well, I forget the name of the Insight metrics, but I've used them before. Start with what you just get for free and see what that looks like. See what that tells you. And then see what that doesn't tell you because there's going to be plenty of insights where you don't have. And then that's you know the next step to figure out, okay, I understand my basic performance metrics, but I don't understand how many times and ways I'm calling into this database for duplicates or something like that, right? Other metrics that might be things that you might want to know about because they indicate a problem. And usually if you own your service, you understand that. And that's where a developer ops really shines above regular ops is regular ops is going to look for different metrics than the person who wrote the code. The person who wrote the code or the team that's responsible for the code is going to intrinsically come up with different scenarios for failure that are functional, right? That depend on what is correct and what is not correct. So figuring out, okay, I need to understand what my interaction with the database is and I'm not getting enough metrics from the free cheap stuff. So I need to add a counter. I always say to start with a counter and not a log because counters scale and logs don't. Obviously, distributed tracing is better. Let's just say logs don't with an asterisk and that they technically do, but it's like a hundred times more expensive than, than a counter does, right? If you think about a counter in, in Datadog, you know, increments a hundred times versus a hundred log lines, each line is, you know, 200 bytes. There's a significant cost in network traffic, in storage, in natural language processing, in parsing and aggregating log lines that just doesn't exist in a counter, just a byte. Yeah, I love it. Yeah, that's a great bit of advice. I think that's a hard one bit of advice by the sound of it, right? <laughs> yeah, I know logs are easy to reach for because, oh, we can look at logs on our machines. Everybody understands logs, but they don't scale at all. So I always prefer to add a metric. And then, you know, if you have a truly exceptional weird case, a log to provide more information. But it really should be a truly exceptional weird case. Great advice, Melissa, great advice. Something I want to pick up on you mentioned there, which I think is super interesting, is about the person who created the thing probably knows best or can intrinsically identify something that's going wrong. They have a stronger mental model, most likely. Any advice on how to sort of shift left some of these responsibilities? You and I briefly talked off mic again around, you know, security testing really needs to be shifted less. It's not a thing you do at the end of the pipeline before release. It is something to think about almost day zero, right? Any tips or hardware experience in that thing too? The earlier you can think about it, the better. As you're writing your code, as you're thinking about, ah, oh, this is what I'm going to monitor. Before you're writing your code, as you're designing, understanding your failure cases, that's an intrinsic part of design. How is this going to go wrong? And then making sure you have monitoring to know that you'll know how it's going to go wrong and that you're handling it appropriately. Having the tooling in place. So if you're going to use automated tooling to catch issues, I always prefer that happens at pull request time and it needs to happen automatically as automated and as fast as possible. So if you're going to rely a lot on unit tests, your code should be unit tested, unit tested inside and pass its unit tests before it lands. This is a part of continuous delivery, but you should never have code in a deployable branch that's not ready to be deployed. Mm, totally makes sense. Also a part of shifting left because you can't 
land stuff and then test it. You have to test it and then land it. That includes all the pieces. Yeah, something I heard you say there about thinking of these things at design time, I think that's super valuable advice. I've heard of threat modeling for when you're doing security using tools like threat modeling to think about you know, the security aspect. Any comments around that? Or is there an analogy as well to thinking about observability, like observability modeling or something like that? <laughs> I don't know that I've ever seen tooling to do observability modeling, which doesn't mean it doesn't exist. It just means that I haven't seen it. Maybe I haven't thought to look for it. But I'm used to having to do it on my own. So I prefer to think of observability from a service-wide level, because if you're, especially if you're microservice, if you're one service, standardization doesn't matter quite as much. But if you have 40 services or 100 services, your standardization matters a lot. So being able to apply the standard model first. So request metrics aren't named one way in one service and another way in another service and a third way in a third service. So you have a standard model to build off of. And then once you sort of have the standard model of things that you get more or less for free with your service or your new piece, writing through your functional paths, writing through your tests, right? writing through your functional testing, especially your end-to-end testing or any user interaction stuff to figure out what are your key paths, what are your key breaking points, because then you're using real interactions and not theoretical interactions. A lot of times where things fall down is we thought about how something should work in our head, but never actually tried it. I don't know how many times I have a dev quote unquote sign off on a change. And you say, did you test it? And they said, well, I unit tested it, but it goes to production and nobody actually ran through the scenario end to end. And it turns out all kinds of things come out when you actually run through a user scenario end to end. That in each unit piece, each unit piece was working fine by itself, but when you put them together, it didn't make any sense. Similar with observability, right? Each of your metrics may seem to make sense individually, but if you don't do a pass all the way through and validate that, yep, this actually makes sense, you're going to find that out in production often to your sadness. <laughs> <laughs> yes, we're close to wrapping up now, but I'd love to get your thoughts around how what we've been discussing today relates to continuous delivery and deployment, as I think these are super important topics for the listeners. So when you have a continuous delivery system, I talked a little bit about it earlier, but a continuous delivery system implies every change in your mainline branch or your deployable branch could in theory go live. Doesn't mean it has to immediately instantly go live, but it should be able to go live without any additional extra validation. So what that looks like is a lot of automated tooling, but also a lot of manual testing and whatever else is appropriate that happens at pull request time. And so what that means is you open a pull request, preferably a quite small one. You get your build run, you get your unit test run, you get any you know, static analysis, simple automated checks that can be run on code run. And then you have to deploy it somewhere to a test environment. And this is where traditionally you used to like loan out test environments now with containers and Terraform, you know, or any infrastructure's code, you can spin one up pretty easily. And it should be as production-like as possible so that you can do your integration testing and end testing. You can do your observability testing there. You can do a manual test pass because most changes still need a manual test pass just to validate that the scenario is correct. I don't know how many times I've heard people say, we don't do manual testing, but they don't really. What they mean is we don't do manual functional regression testing, not that we don't do scenario validation. Because I promise you, if nobody's doing it, your users are, yes. and they're not happy about it. <laughs> so by the time something has finished PR, it needs to have been truly tested, right? You need to have spun up the UI and looked at some pages, whether that's through UI automation or with somebody looking. Every piece needs to have actually been deployed and run and truly validated to ensure that when you've landed, yep, no problem, can go live, you know, in theory instantly. There's no room for slack or margin of error, right? You can't hand wave away. Yeah, I swear I ran the build, but you didn't and your code doesn't compile. Yeah, I've definitely seen that. I've definitely seen that. Have you got any tips on sort of progressive rollout? I see a lot of folks talking about progressive delivery as well. And I think it's a really interesting idea. A lot of it kind of boils down to canary releasing, feature flagging, kind of limiting the blast radius. Have you got any tips you'd like to share with the listeners around that? 
both. So canary releases are great if you're worried about the box itself, right? If you're incrementing some version and you're like, oh, I don't know about the performance on my new version of Linux or my new runtime framework version. Canarying is great for that because you can clearly see differences. Feature flagging is much better and safer. It's more binary, right? Because if you're canarying, you're still affecting some percentage of your users. Small percentage in theory, but it's still affecting some percentage of your users. So canarying is great when you're worried about performance changes that aren't critical. Feature flagging are when it's crawling across the whole box, you know, or the whole container, whatever. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Whereas feature flagging will cut across every box you have, but will limit the blast radius of users. So if you're more limited about taking out users, it's better to do feature flagging so you can limit the scope to a specific set of users. If you're more worried about the box itself failing, it's better to canary so that you only lose one box instead of losing all your boxes. Well, it's been great chatting, Melissa. We've covered a lot of ground there. I'm sure the listeners will be taking away a bunch of notes here and I'll be sure to like link anything super interesting in the chat as well. Thanks very much for your time. Yeah, thank you. This was fun. Thank you.